Well, one of my favorite things about living here is that we are so close to the ocean, to the coast. And it's my favorite place in the world. I love to take my girls, Allie and Emmy, uh, to the ocean. They love to play in the water, and I like to sit there and read, and everybody wins. And nothing can really mess up a good beach day except for, as we've come to find out, seagulls. So one day, my daughters um, decided to bring a snack to the beach, and I was a little underprepared, and they grabbed this little tiny, you know those like um, chips that you put in your kid's lunch that are little? We only had one, and so they brought it, and they were gonna share it. And as soon as we got to the beach and we set up camp, this seagull just swooped in out of nowhere and grabbed it, and it actually got away with their chips. I can't even express the level of anger that my girls just yelling at this bird and waving their little arms and, and uh, well, it's kind of lived in infamy. We now, we are not fans of seagulls. And every time we go to the beach, they clear the perimeter. They scare them all away. And, and uh, yeah, that I'm sure will not ever happen again to them. Well, it wasn't too long after the seagull incident, we went back to the beach um, and we set up our camp and we got all situated. And not too far from us, these two young ladies, I'd say they were in their 20s, made their little camp next to us as well. And my girls ran to the water to go start playing. And these two women also went into the water, but they were there for a photo shoot, which I'm assuming was for their Instagrams. And so one was taking the pictures and the other was um, doing this little dance move with their hands above her head. And they were just trying to get that perfect shot with the ocean background, I'm assuming. And you know, this went on for about half an hour with the only interruptions being when they would stop to look at the phone to make sure it turned out just right, which I'm assuming it didn't because they would go right back to it. Well, while they were focusing so hard on getting this perfect picture of themselves, they had turned their back on their blanket. And if you are my daughters and you are frequent beachgoers, you know you cannot leave your blanket unattended for too long because seagulls will come. And sure enough, one by one, they started coming in. And before long, it was actually amazing. I've never seen this many seagulls ever, let alone in one place. There was probably about 50 seagulls on their blanket. And they not only pulled apart their lunch, but they were going for their purse. We watched a seagull try to fly away with their sunglasses. It was hilarious. So we were, we were just cracking up watching the spectacle. And other people on the beach were starting to notice. And we're just like, wow, that's a lot of seagulls. And the thing that was so amazing about it is that these girls, these women, that were in the water taking pictures of themselves had no clue, not even a little. They were completely oblivious to what was going on. Now, there's nothing inherently sinful with taking a good picture of yourself, but I think from my perspective, what I was watching looked a little bit like self-absorption. They were so focused on themselves and getting a pretty picture that they, they really didn't even see anyone else. They were unaware of the world around them. And it was funny because in that moment, I panned back down the beach to my own two little girls who were dancing with their hands above their heads in the water and playing. And it, I couldn't help but make that comparison. Whoa, here's two little girls and here's two grown women. And they seem to be doing something pretty similar. And it kind of hit me then, isn't it important to mature? Don't we want to be mature? We want to all grow in maturity? Well, this is a really important concept in our spiritual life as well, isn't it? Pastor Mike taught on this a couple weeks ago when we were finishing up the fruit um, series that we were in. And he said, we shouldn't be comparing our growth to other people. We should be comparing our growth to our own spiritual calendar. How long have we been a Christian? Are we growing or are we childish? Are we making progress or are we not very far along? 
the reality is that the goal for every single believer is to grow up into maturity in Christ. There's nothing more important than that because as we grow into Christ, we know him more and we can please him more. We have to be people who are growing in maturity. And that is exactly what we get to talk about today. John has some strong encouragement for us to continue to mature, to continue to grow, and that's what we get to look at together. If you haven't turned there already, we're going to be in 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 through 14. 1 John 2, 12 through 14. And I'd love for us to read the whole section together before we jump in. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who's from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you've overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who's from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you've overcome the evil one. John gives us three categories of people. He talks about fathers and children and young men. And right away, right off the bat, we can make the assumption that he's pointing out various stages of growth in the Christian life. There are different road marks on the way to maturity, if you will. Children, young men, fathers. And up to this point, John has spent a lot of time really clarifying for us the difference between the light and the darkness. He's really pressed on the fact that you have to know that you are walking in the light with the God who is light and forsaking the darkness. You have to know that you are in Christ for that's walking in the light. And that's crucial. He's been building that because we need to know that if we are not in Christ, we are dead. And we do not expect a dead thing to grow. It just doesn't happen. If you know me at all, or if you've been to my house and can see for yourself, I cannot keep plants alive. I really struggle. Uh, Kristen Gomez actually came over and tried to help me with my plants because she's a green thumb and they all still died. Well, one morning my husband was going to work and as he was leaving, he caught me watering my plants by my door, including this completely shriveled up brown dead tree. I still watered it and he looked at me and he started laughing. He said, do you know that's not gonna grow? And I kind of laughed because I realized in the moment that I was watering a dead plant, but I kind of retorted back to him, well, I'm still not as bad as your neighbor because we had this running joke about his childhood neighbor up in the mountains. She came out pretty regularly with her watering can and she watered all of her plastic plants in the front yard. <laughs> so, you know, I, at least I'm, I'm farther along than she was, right? But the thing that her plastic plants and my dead plant had in common is that neither of them would grow. They couldn't, they were both dead. And that's so true for us as Christians as well, isn't it? We might be doing all the right things, we might be coming to church or Bible study or whatever it is, but it's easy to look like you're real and not be. You can be artificial. We have to be absolutely certain without a shadow of a doubt that we are in the light where Christ is. We have repented of our sins and put our trust in Christ so we can be in the light. And that's really what John is pointing out here in verse 12. Look at verse 12 again. He says, I'm writing to you little children because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. 
Do you see him pointing this back to forgiveness? You have to know that your sins are forgiven because you have repented and put your trust in Christ. That's square one. We can't expect to mature if that has not happened genuinely. That's how I wanna write it for our first point. If we wanna grow, if we want to mature, we have to be confident of our identity in Christ. Be confident of your identity in Christ. John begins verse 12 by saying, I write to you little children, little children. It's interesting because we've seen that word before, haven't we? It's the same word he used in chapter two, verse one, when he used this as a term of endearment. I am writing to you little children. Well here, it's not in term of endearment as much as it's the standing we have at the first stop in the lineup to Christian maturity. We all start as a little child. In verse 12, like we saw in our homework, that word children is technon. And it refers to a really young child, like a toddler. In verse 13, the word children is actually the Greek word pation, still talking about a child, but this is more of a learner. Maybe a child who's a little bit farther along. I love that John uses the word technon, that very young child, not just to show how much he loves them, but to remind them that when you start out in Christ, this is square one. This is where every believer begins as a technon, a little child. Now, maybe you're a mom and you have a toddler or you babysit a toddler or you serve in kidsmen with toddlers, but I want us all to picture a toddler in our mind, the toddler, the technon. That's what John is trying to paint the picture of for us. When I think of toddlers, I actually think of kidsmen. Uh, <laughs> I love on Sundays, right after church service starts, you can just hear all the crying. Don't leave me. They are so attached to their parents. Toddlers have an intense relationship to their parents, don't they? Well, a couple weeks ago, I was serving in, um, in one of the toddler rooms, and I was sitting with this little guy who was just not having the separation. He was not okay. His mom just abandoned him to Sunday school. And he was sitting there and it was so cute. He was trying so hard not to cry. And you know, every once in a while, his little exhale would be a little sob that he would try to gain control and not cry. We tried everything to make him smile, everything. And nothing worked until he heard the sound of his mom's voice in the hallway. And just the sight of her and his whole little body just leapt up out of the chair, arms out, running to mom. And it was so cute because it is the, exactly the picture I was thinking of in this passage. Toddlers, they know their mom. They know their dad. They have an intense relationship with their parents. They know where they belong. We don't expect too much of a toddler. We don't ask them to make their beds in the morning or wash the car or do their algebra. They can't. A toddler really only knows his basic family unit. A toddler knows where he belongs. He knows his parent. That, that is the picture that John is painting for us. Square one, where we all start. We have to be like a little child who knows his parent. Look at verse 13 at the bottom. It says, I write to you children because you know the Father. We can't grow or mature if we are not part of God's family. Like a toddler clinging to his dad, 
in my mind, it's the picture of like a toddler grabbing their dad's arm while we're ripping them off into the Sunday school classroom. That's the picture, like a toddler clinging to his dad. Our relationship with God should be real and vibrant and intense. That's where we have to start. And I want to take a minute and just focus on the heart of what John's saying in verse 12. I love this. He's forgiven us for his name's sake. What a reminder that we didn't do anything to help this along. He's the one that forgave us, and he did it for his own namesake. That's amazing. That's a gift, isn't it? We've spent so much time so far in 1 John really clarifying the light versus the darkness. Make sure you're in Christ and you're not in sin. But do you guys see the motivator here? Why is it so important to walk in the light? Well, it's love, isn't it? Look at the motivator. We now have a new identity in Christ, and we should respond to him. That's what a child would do, right? That's the picture that John is painting. What begins in childhood really is what carries on and continues to grow and deepen all the way into maturity. This is where we all have to start, every believer across the board. This is where we have to start. If you don't think that you're a sinner, or maybe that we're making too much of a big deal out of this, well, I promise you this, if you don't think you're a sinner, you're not gonna love the one who has forgiven you of your sin. We have to really take an honest look and evaluate, are we in Christ? Have our sins been forgiven for his namesake? Have we repented? We have to ask that, we have to be honest with ourselves. Maybe you're a believer, but you struggle with assurance with doubt. Am I ever going to really believe I'm saved? Am I ever going to stop questioning this? Well, it's time to be confident. It's time to be confident of your identity in Christ because he made a promise that he's faithful and just to forgive us of all of our unrighteousness. He promised if you have repented of your sin and put your trust in Christ, you've got to be confident in this new identity in Christ. You won't grow unless you move past the doubts and the lack of assurance. Maybe you've been a Christian for a long time and you don't necessarily doubt anymore, but maybe, maybe you just need to picture this little toddler, this little technon hanging on to their parent and let that be a reminder of the love that you should have for your father. As we grow, we should grow in our gratitude for the love and forgiveness that God has given us because he's our father. Maybe we just need to picture that little toddler in our mind. We should want to grow, really, because we know that as we grow, we get to know him more. And as we know him more, we can live for him and please him more. We should want to grow. That should be a desire of our heart, a response. A genuine Christian doesn't just pray a prayer and then let God float them down the river of sanctification. It doesn't work like that. If anything, that is the opposite of the picture of someone who understands what Christ has done and is motivated by love. We need to be people who are willing to live for Christ and love Christ because of what he's done. We understand we are forgiven, and that should be our motivation. It doesn't matter what he asks of us or how hard it's going to be. We're his. We want to live for him. Well, I don't know about you, but when I think about hard work or doing my part or putting in effort, I think about physical work. I think about sweat and strength and having to do a hard job. 
And that's actually exactly the picture that John is kind of painting for us as well. That's the next phase in our growth. And if you can't tell by now, I'm, I'm not exactly going verse by verse. I'm going to take these three categories and kind of go linearly as we look at each phase. So look with me at verse 13. Let's read verses 13 and verses 14 about the young man. Verse 13 says, I'm writing to you, young men, because you've overcome the evil one. And again in verse 14, he says, I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. What is it that makes the young man strong? It's that he abides in the word of God. That is awesome. It's so clear that we have a role to play in our growth. If we want to move from childhood to adulthood, it's going to require our participation. We have to abide in the word of God. And that's how I want to word it for our second point. If you want to mature in Christ, you must saturate your mind with scripture. Saturate your mind with scripture. To say that something is saturated usually refers to water. And I love Webster's definition because I just thought this was funny. It's the state of maximum impregnation, the presence of the most water possible under existent pressure. Isn't that the picture? I picture taking the, those giant car washing sponges and just plunging it in a pool for four hours. When you pull that thing up, it's gonna drip water because literally every square inch is full to capacity. It can't fit any more water. When you squeeze it, water comes out. Wouldn't that be cool if that was the picture of believers when it comes to their relationship with the word of God, that it just oozes out of us. It's what we talk about. It's what we're thinking about. It's because we're pumping it in. We can't even hold anymore. We're to the brim. Does that describe you? Does that describe me? Is that the relationship we have with the Word of God? And maybe you're thinking, why, why saturate? Not sure I'm getting this from the text. Well, let's look back at verse 14. What is it that makes the young men strong? And the reason why I like this word saturate is because it reminds me very much of a word that John used. And if you can't tell by now, I really like words, so I get excited about this. The word abide is the Greek word meno, and it literally means to immerse to remain, to dwell in, to continue, to endure. That's a really strong word, isn't it? To, to connect the young man and his relationship to the word of God. He is immersed in it. He continues in it. Does that sound like the picture of someone who grabs their Bible on the, out the door on the way to church once a week? No. It's interesting because here, it's the young man, that picture of vigor and youth and strength. What's the source of his strength? It's that he abides in the word of God. It's his daily nourishment that keeps his strength up. It's his source. We cannot expect to mature if we are not in God's word. We can't, it just won't happen. And this really comes back full circle to our motives, doesn't it? Shouldn't we? Like little children who understand what God has done for us, shouldn't we want to hear his voice, to know what he says? Shouldn't we, like that toddler, just yearn for the sound of our parent? Shouldn't that be our motive? How could we not want to know what he says to us? 
We need to discipline ourselves to make time for the word of God out of a motivation of love for the God who has forgiven us of our sins. Look back with me to chapter two, verses four through six. Chapter two, four through six. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we know and we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way that he walked. Obedience to God is a sign of genuineness for the believer. John makes that crystal clear in this passage, doesn't he? And he does the same thing in the Gospel of John, chapter 14, verse 15. If we love Christ, we will obey him. And so that begs the question, how can you obey his commandments if you don't know what they are? How can you keep his words, like he said here in chapter two, if you don't know what he said? You cannot obey God if you don't read his word. You can't. And not only are you unable to obey, but you're certainly not going to be able to be strong to overcome the evil one. Look again at verses 13 and 14. Both of these verses reference the evil one. What's the evil one? Well, it refers to the devil, the world system of evil that opposes God. This is evil, this is sin, this is the enemy of God. We know that we live in a fallen world that is tainted by sin. It's not hard to look at our culture and say, these people, this culture is one that loves darkness, not light. That's the world we live in that is tainted by sin. And in addition to that, we know from scripture that our own hearts are deceptive, deceptively wicked above all else. We also know that even if we are Christians, we are going to fight our own flesh, our own temptations, as long as we live on this earth. If anything, the Christian needs to know that the odds are stacked against him when it comes to evil and sin. We're going to have to fight. You're going to have to oppose, to be strong. And I love what our homework said um, for 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Most of you did that homework where the question was, how can we avoid temptation? By relying on Christ. He has overcome the evil one in his death and his resurrection. We need him. We have to rely on him if we are to overcome the evil that we face. And he is giving us his strength. He's given us his spirit and he's given us his word. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape so that you may be able to endure it. His word should fill our minds so that we know how to think and how to act. There is a direct correlation between knowing and obeying the word of God and resisting and overcoming evil and temptation, a direct correlation. Jesus even modeled this for us. He faced temptation and he overcame with using scripture. I'd love for us to turn to a passage in Matthew 4. We're gonna read Matthew 4, 1 through 11, and it's familiar to us, I'm sure. It's Jesus facing temptation from Satan. And this was life and death for him. This was a huge deal. And he overcame temptation by relying on the word of God. And if he needed to do that, how much more should we? Why do we think we don't need to use scripture in our temptations if Jesus did? 
Listen to what the Bible says in Matthew 4 and try to catch how many times Jesus uses scripture and how he uses scripture. It just came out of him. It wasn't work, he didn't fumble, this he knew. Matthew 4, 1 through 11. Then Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and he said, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered and said, it's written, man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to a holy city and he set him on the pinnacle of the temple and he said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it's written, he will command his angels concerning you and on their hands, they'll bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him again, it's written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I'll give you if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus said, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Listen to how the psalmist describes the relationship between the way we are to use scripture and the way we are to fight sin. In addition to what we just saw in Jesus' life, we know we have to do the same thing. And listen to how this is worded. It's interesting that the psalmist also references the young man. Psalm 119, 9 through 11. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it, according to your word. With all my heart, I sought you. Do not let me stray from your commandments. I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. We have got to seek the Lord with all of our hearts. We have to. That means we have to make this a priority. So realistically, how do we make this a priority? First off, we've got to get rid of all of the excuses that crop up for reasons why we cannot be in the word of God. First excuse being, I don't have time. And maybe for some of us, that's actually true. Maybe you are gonna look at your schedule and it is block to block, lined up, busy. And there's really just not a place you can insert your Bible study, or at least not a good quality one. So I guess the question then becomes, not where will you fit in your time in the Word, but what are you going to sacrifice and give it the Bible's place? What are you going to let die so that you have the time to spend in the Word? We all have 24 hours and God has given us each the same amount of time every day. Our lives might look different, our jobs might look different, but we all have to make time in the word a priority. Maybe it means getting up earlier, maybe it means going to bed later, but the reality is maybe we need to start seeing it as a sacrifice. This is something we need to do. We have to make it happen. What about, I just don't get it, it's boring. Never, ever, ever in the history of the world have there been more resources at our fingertips to help us understand. Morris Proctor is coming soon, right? We have so many different ways where we can learn about what God's word says. There are commentaries and sermons and blogs. Don't waste time. Seek him out. Seek him out with all your heart. What about, I just don't like reading. I can't get into it no matter what I try. This might sound totally cheesy, and if you know me, you've heard me say this before, but maybe you need to do something to help get into it. Make your time in the Word something that you look forward to. In my house, I have a, a Bible spot. It used to be this chair that was truly, it was an ugly chair, so I tried to cover it with a blanket, and it didn't help. It was my chair. 
And that's where every morning I sat in my sweatpants and I had my coffee and I had my time in the Word. And I looked forward to my time in my spot. Uh, my husband wouldn't let the chair make the move with us. It was done. So now I have a spot on the couch. But it's something I look forward to because it's, I have my coffee there. I get my cute pens and a little jar. It's, I make it something I enjoy. And maybe you need to do the same thing. If you're struggling getting into it, make it a time you look forward to. I think I'm not alone in, the, in thinking like this, but <laughs> maybe it's the same as if you're going to commit to a new exercise routine. You're gonna stick to it, you know it's gonna be hard, and it's gonna be grueling, and you're gonna make it happen every day. So what's the first thing you do? Well, you and everybody else in quarantine, probably because everything was sold out, went to go buy a new workout outfit, right? You get a cute workout outfit, you get a matching water bottle, and you're ready to start this new routine. Is that gonna help you in any way be stronger? No, but it's more fun. It makes you more excited to do it. Think that way about your time in the Word. Make it something you look forward to. If you can't get into it, discipline yourself to make it something you want to do. It's worth the effort. It's worth it. And honestly, if we're starting to ask at this point, well, does it really matter how mature I am? Don't we all end up in heaven, no matter how mature we are? And then I fear we're missing the whole point. And maybe we need to ask ourselves the opposite. What happens? What do you miss if you don't mature? As a mom, I love to see things when we're out and about that reinforce what I'm trying to teach my girls. For example, when they're fighting in the car and I'm talking to them about their attitudes and then we go into Target and I see two kids fighting and I point it out, see? See what it looks like when you fight? I love when that happens because it's like the visual. Well, the other day we were in TJ Maxx. I, uh, so many happy places. I love cute things for your house. So we're in line for TJ Maxx and the line was really long and uh, I was probably buying fake plants to water. But as we're in line, I could see everyone start groaning. And the, the woman in front of me was just, she'd had it. We're done here. I've waited in line for half an hour. And so she asked a question of the clerk. The clerk couldn't answer her question. And that's all it took for an already irritable woman to just lose control. She started yelling at this clerk and that clerk and that clerk. And then security came out and she yelled at them too. And it was funny because I had my girls next to me and their little eyes got big. And the thing that made this so sad was really the woman's age. She was acting like a two-year-old, having a temper tantrum. And it was sad because shouldn't she have known better? Probably. But there's something key here that I think also applies to our spiritual life that we have to be so careful of. And that is we can't assume that age automatically equals spiritual maturity. It doesn't. It's quite possible to advance in years and not in maturity. We can't assume we're just going to get there. I want to read two passages, and as I read them, picture these were letters that were directed to you, because they were. Each of them were letters, and they were read to believers. And imagine if this was worded to you, how you would feel. Hebrews 5, 12 through 14. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the words of righteousness since he's a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment, trained by constant practice to distinguish good and evil. Listen to what Paul said to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 3, 1 and 2. 
this would be a bummer if this was the Apostle Paul talking to you, right? But I, brothers, I couldn't address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. This has to be a warning for each of us that it is possible to advance in years and not in maturity. We can't assume that we will just get there. We can't. We have to seek the Lord with all our heart. We have to put in the effort and run hard after Christ. We have to. And ultimately, it's worth the effort. It's worth the work because of the unfathomable gift that we get. We don't want to miss this. What do we not want to miss? John explains it. In the last phase of maturity, he really hits home with what we don't want to miss. We don't want to stunt our own growth. Look with me at verses 13 and 14. It's interesting because he says the same thing twice. This must be important. 13 and 14. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who's from the beginning. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who's from the beginning. What John is saying here is precious. And it's worth taking just a minute just to stop and pull this thing apart so we really get what he's saying. Look with me at verse 13 and 14 and put your finger on that word know. I'm right to you fathers because you know him. That word know is in Greek, it's, it's gnosko. It obviously means to know. But what I love about this word is that it implies a deeper meaning. It's, it's a deep and intimate knowledge. If you were going to read Matthew 1:25 and put your finger on the word no in that verse, do you know what it would say? It's the word that the Bible says, Joseph did not know Mary till after Jesus was born. It's talking about intimacy. The fathers, the most mature in the Christian faith, they are the ones who have a deep and intimate knowledge. Who's the object of this deep and intimate knowledge? John says it, and this is my favorite part. We've actually seen this exact phrase, him who's from the beginning. Do you know where else we've seen that? If we were reading this book in Koine Greek as it was written, this phrase, him who's from the beginning, would have been the very, very first things your eyes saw in the book of 1 John. That which is from the beginning, chapter one, verse one, which we have heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon and touched with our hands. Isn't that awesome? Colossians 2.9 says that in him, in Jesus, all the fullness of God dwells bodily. Jesus is the word of life. Jesus is him who's from the beginning. The pinnacle of Christian maturity is this. You deeply and intimately know Jesus Christ. And while that may not sound revolutionary, the implications of this are massive. Jesus Christ is the object of our affection, our allegiance, our worship. It's been about him all along. And that's how I wanna word it for our final point. If you wanna mature, you have to remember your first love. You have to remember your first love. This passage actually became pretty dear to me um, a couple months ago. I started studying 1 John before I knew we'd be studying this together in women's Bible study. And like yours, uh, my schedule changed quite a bit when quarantine first started. Everything shut down. And so in some ways, my life became busier and others, it became less so. But regardless, I had this weird new routine. And when I came to this specific passage, 
I feel like God just slowed me down to a stop. And I had to evaluate my motives. Why did I do what I was doing? I was busy, but what were my motives? What was I doing it for? It was here in these verses that I feel like God forced me to evaluate my motives and my own maturity, and I was pretty humbled by what I found. Because what I had found was that I had allowed my focus to shift from Christ to myself or to worrying what other people would think of me. And he, in his kindness, stopped my whole world and grabbed me by the face and told me to remember my first love. Revelation 2 Two through four is a familiar passage to us because it's the warning to the church in Ephesus. But I want to read some of the phrases that are used to describe them. They were working hard, patient in endurance, tirelessly working without growing weary, but they had forgotten the love they had at first and they were told they needed to repent. They were doing well, they were doing good, but they were not motivated by a love for Christ. So it didn't matter. Isn't the same so easily true for us? We can be busy, we can be doing good things, but if we are not motivated from our heart by a love for Christ that trumps every other love, it's all for naught. We have to be people who remember our first love. It's interesting that John focuses so much time on Jesus specifically. It's clear that his letter is a defense of the deity and the saving power of Jesus. We don't know exactly why he wrote this letter. Some commentators say it was to combat Gnosticism. Others just said it was just false teaching in general. But regardless, John is putting our eyes straight on Christ. His letter is a a defense of the deity and the saving power of Jesus. He is both the author and the object of our faith. It's all about him. When you think about the fact that you had no way to come to God on your own and he took the handwriting of requirements that stood against you and took them out of the way by nailing them to the cross, how do you feel? Do you think about the fact that you were strangers, you were enemies, and he adopted you as his own? You were dead, now you're alive. You were lost, he found you. That should stir in us a gratitude, shouldn't it? Shouldn't we want to live for him? Shouldn't that be the prevailing love in our hearts? I think we all would say we want to respond to the gospel. But I guess my question is really, to what degree? To what degree will you respond to the gospel? How much of your life is going to change? Is your whole identity now in Christ? Are you actively seeking after him? Are you motivated by love for him? A little known fact about my family is that I'm the oldest of five, but I didn't grow up with five kids in the house. My youngest brother and sister are nine years old. They were adopted when I was pregnant with Emmy uh, when they were two. So I have a nine-year-old brother and sister, which is weird. And because I was pregnant with Emmy, I remember feeling a little guilty thinking about adoption day, that it's just, there wouldn't be any way it would be as special as what I was gonna have with Emmy. And adoption day changed that for me. I remember we all crowded into this big, ugly building in a big, ugly room, and we stood in line with a bunch of people we didn't know. And then the judge walked in, and they looked at you know, my, my mom and dad, and they asked them a series of questions if they understood the implications of a legal adoption. 
And from that day on, they had to swear with their right hands up that from that moment forward, the twins would be equal heirs of any inheritance money that their natural born children would have. They would have the same legal standing as their natural born children. In fact, all the rights and privileges of their natural born children would be equal in every capacity from that moment on. My parents agreed, and it was cute because they were two. She pulled out this little magic wand from her robe, and she said, ta-da, you're official. And just like that, in like eight minutes, these two sweet babies were given the exact same standing that I had had with my family for 30 years. And it was incredible to watch. The life of abuse and pain and neglect that they had known, although they were young, was gone, done. Just like that, they had a new identity. They had new names. They had a new family, a big family crowded into this room. Everything changed. That is what Christ has done for us, that. Listen to these verses. Ephesians 1.5, in love, he predestined us for adoptions as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Doesn't that sound familiar? It's not our will, it's his. Romans 8, 15 and 16. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Does that remind you of a technon a little bit? When we had no way of getting out of our situation and nothing to bring to the table, God came and found us. He adopted us, he made us part of his family. He paid the debt we owed. He made us his own. When I think about how I should respond to Christ because of what he's done for me, I guess I think about the way that my earthly dad wants my brother and sister to respond to him. He wants them to love him back. He wants them to call him daddy. They're nine years old, so he really wants them to obey. He wants them to honor him. He's not worried about them earning their keep or paying back the debt they owe. He covered it. He wants them to want to be around him, to learn from him, to enjoy being part of his family. That's amazing, isn't it? That's what God has done for us. Imagine with me that as the twins get older and they're in high school or college and my dad gives them a call on the phone and they answer and they say, oh dad, I just can't talk right now, I'm really busy. When he knows they could make time if they wanted to, they have plans with their friends, or what if he overheard them talking to their friends, talking about, oh, adoption's really hard. It's just a lot. That would be ridiculous. He's the one that made the sacrifices. He's the one that did it. Shouldn't we respond more so to the God who saved us? Shouldn't we? I guess the, <laughs> the encouragement in this passage really takes two forms. There's a positive and a negative. If we are not grateful for the salvation that we have been given, if we don't think that our sins are that bad, we need to be honest about where we stand. Are you part of God's family? Do you know that you are? Are you confident? Do you love what he's done for you? Do you seek after him hard? Do you fill your mind with his words because you love him? Do you remember your first love? Is it about Jesus? Is he first? If you are a Christian, let these three verses be to you what it was to me, and this is my prayer, that really these three verses will be a shot in the arm 
that we can mature. It is possible. He is kind. He gives us his word. Don't waste time. Don't stunt your own growth. Don't make excuses. Run hard after Jesus Christ, the one who loved you and saved you. The mark of Christian maturity is to let what was true in the beginning grow and deepen into this intimate knowledge of the one who's from the beginning, Jesus Christ. Ladies, let's be people, let's be women who really strive to reach full maturity because we love him. We love Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, what, what can we say? How can we thank you for what you've done? Thank you for loving us. Thank you for coming and doing what we could never do. Thank you for saving us, for adopting us, for making us your own. I pray, Lord, that you would stir in our hearts a genuine desire for you, that you would just blur out the world around us that seeks to distract us or divide us or love other things and give them your place. Lord, I pray, God, that you would keep our hearts steady and focused on you and that we would love you first and most and run hard after you. I pray for the women in this room, Lord, that they would encourage each other to do that, that we collectively, God, would keep each other accountable and really help each other keep our eyes fixed on you, God, because there's nothing else that compares. We love you and we want to serve you and honor you and please you and know you. Thank you for what you've done for us and it's in your name we pray, amen.